This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Those of us who read 1984 many years ago have often commented that we never expected to see it in real life, but the COVID-19 pandemic has changed a lot of things, as we know, including our false hope that George Orwell was just a good fiction writer. Now, in the last several months, we have gotten a taste of how the woke never let a serious crisis go to waste. Our compliance with 15 days to slow the spread led to the realization that leftist protesters were exempt from lockdowns, and then churches had to close, but liquor stores could stay open. And then we learned that as soon as we got a COVID-19 vaccine, all would be well. Well, now the EEOC is saying employers can ban employees who refuse to take the vaccine. Where does the tyranny end or maybe will it end? I hate that second question, but we're going to talk about it all today with one of the champions of free speech and opponents of authoritarianism, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He was a professor of liberal studies and global liberal studies at NYU and has written a number of great books, including his latest dystopian novel. It's really great. Thought Criminal, which has been billed as the 1984 of the COVID era. Dr. Rechtenwald, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. What is it about the COVID era, do you think, that makes a discussion about thought criminals so important? Well, with all of the mandates, with all the edicts being handed down, and with all the you know, the restrictions on free speech, uh, not only on the Internet, but elsewhere. Uh, I think we're living in an era that really is reminiscent of, of the novel 1984, such that people are calling it COVID-1984. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're dealing with, uh, crime, you know, thought crimes, basically. We're dealing with the, the uh, making illegal, basically, any kind of dissidence any sort of distance from this, what I will call a, a wave of totalitarianism that's taking over our country well, and the world right. at large. Yeah, you're totally right about that. Now, we started out, obviously, in the era. We're, we're being told we didn't want to overwhelm the hospitals. Everybody needed to be locked down. I think most people at that point thought, OK, that's fine. After a couple of weeks, we'll all go back to normal. Where did this thing go off the rails, do you think, when you're looking back over the course of the last year? Well, as far as I can tell, and from some research that I've done, I believe that the Chinese Communist Party has uh, has basically transmitted propaganda into our state apparatuses in the United States, and they started to believe it, and then and then enforce it. Uh, in other words, not only did the virus come from China, but the propaganda in order to co- create these lockdowns and mandates and even the social distancing and masking, which have, you know, diminished the quality of our lives, I think, dramatically. All of this may have come from China itself uh, and then picked up by our state authorities and then run with it because some of these people, after all, many of them are leftist authoritarians who just love power and they love to control other people. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're right about that. And then you combine that with what they're doing online. And when you have doctors, for example, who go against the narrative that has been put forward by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, for example, they're not allowed to tweet or their videos are taken down by YouTube. That's a new development. I mean, we're the country of free speech. We're the country of the First Amendment. What in the world is going on such that they're doing this and they still get away with it despite all of these congressional hearings? It's uh, it's unbelievable. So what happened is that the public square has really been taken over by digital media. Um, and so there's really no, you know, outside of, you know, radio like this, uh, the, the public square in general has been taken over by leftist authoritarians who run big digital. And therefore, people are being digitally deleted, you know, disappeared as in, you know, the Soviet system where they disappeared dissidents into gulags now they're just disappearing them from cyberspace yeah. and and this is really unbelievable we have seen a wave of totalitarianism taking over large corporations and especially you know big tech big tech is now run by leftist authoritarians and uh, they seem to have the same model that china has in mind for their citizens that they want a compliant, completely controlled population with giant tech, tech, with giant technocrats in charge, and everybody else more or less living on base, universal basic income. Yeah, that seems to be the object. Yeah, it does. Well, you talk in the book about collective mind, for example. Did you have those big tech or the technocrats in mind when you were formulating that that portion of the narrative? Yeah, collective mind is like the giant data and processing system that can uh, that is controlling you know the society. It's effectively the the state's major apparatus for, for controlling the population. And what happens in the novel is they're trying to connect people's brains, their neocortexes, directly to connective mind using nanobots, yeah. which they're calling a virus but which the hero of the novel believes is really being propagated, not uh, being propagated by the state rather than being uh, trying to be uh, cured by it. So, yes, I had in mind that, but also the collectivism of people who just follow along in a herd that, that comply with everything and then try to enforce that com- compliance onto everyone else around them. Yeah. You notice how people screaming at others who have no mask on or standing too close or whatever other. And soon it'll be the vaccine. If, you, if you're not vaccinated, this collective mob will be all over you. I guarantee it. Yep. Yep. The Karens. This is interesting because you might have seen this video. I know some listeners might have seen this video recently. Dr. Fauci was on CNN doing a town hall for kids and parents. And he was saying with the vaccine, Almost everybody has to get it or we're never going to be able to give up the masks. Now, we know the goalposts keep moving with this crowd. They keep telling you, if we can just get a vaccine, everything will be great. And then they move the goalposts again. But that would unleash not just government, it would seem, to crack down on people, but the Karens. I mean, that, how much of that comes from people who have bought into the fear and the hysteria who want to go around in Walmarts and just scream at other people and shame them into doing what the state wants us to do? It's incredible. There, there's really a collective hysteria that has taken over the mass of the population. Uh, and this is really a psychological 
this is, you know, something that is in the psychological manuals. This, this is not some sort of contrived uh, idea that I have. I mean, there really is such a thing as collective hysteria, and it's been induced on the population. Yeah, you're right about that. What causes that, though? Why do you think people are so willing to just swallow everything the government is feeding them? And I think you're right about the Chinese Communist Party having gotten into some of the apparatus of these states and did did some propaganda at the outset. But what makes people susceptible to propaganda as opposed to, say, the protagonist of your novel who fights back and is a thought, you know, resists the the, the collective mind and the narrative? Well, there is a certain individuality among some people that, 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 that value individuality above everything else. And then there are others who seem to say that they're for the collective good or the common good. Yep. But those phrases are always the watchwords for totalitarianism. Whenever you hear common good or collective good or for the collective, you know they're about to take or already have taken your rights away. But some people love to buy into this kind of collectivism. Uh, they just would rather sacrifice their individuality because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it has to do with a certain personality type or maybe they have a lack of belief in the self or in, in a higher power, actually. Yeah. They, yeah. The state becomes God for them. Yeah. Oh, I think you're right. And maybe coupled along with that is a a real ignorance about history. It just amazes me how many people will, you know, in the Gen X or or millennials will come along, Gen Z really, and say, oh, yeah, socialism is great. Yeah, we just need to try socialism, having no understanding whatsoever of the history of socialism and the old Soviet Union. It's just a terrible situation. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Thought Criminal is the name of his book. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, spending a few minutes with Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, people have a lot of questions today about their healthcare coverage. How is it that Liberty HealthShare works? Well, we work on an individual basis of mutual aid and sharing. So it's not a pooling of funds. It's not a big, complex, bureaucratic mess. It really is. Whenever you have a health care bill, our members go in and share in your medical expenses. And we have seen the decrease of costs, the decrease of complexity, and the increase of accessibility and freedom. So we change the whole script on its head when it comes to health care. So we're not beholden to large third-party payment systems that dictate to you to your health care. We set you free in your health care where you're guiding it based on your principles and beliefs. Why do so many members choose and recommend Liberty HealthShare? Well, there's a lot of reasons, frankly, but a lot of the reasons that people start with is cost. Health care has become very expensive. Trying to pay that every single month or actually going to the doctor's office and having to take care of massive medical bills, that's a big drawback from third-party payment systems. And with Liberty Health Share, 
We've done everything we can to try to bring that cost down as much as possible. But once people are a part of the community and see that it is an affordable option for them, they start to see that they're helping their neighbor each and every month. Go to bed every night knowing that you contributed to somebody else who has a need. And that's what being a part of a community is really all about. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, I am a fan of the books of Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, and I'm really excited about his new dystopian novel. It's called Thought Criminal, billed as the 1984 of the COVID era. And of course, in this book, you have Case Varen, who is the protagonist in your novel, explores the life. Your book explores the life of this man. He's a, a man who lost his job as a professor at Transhuman University, which, of course, brings transhumanism into this entire thing. He's a thought deviationist. He's a vaccine resistor. There's a lot packed in it. But, you know, of course, this is modeling in some ways your experience as a professor and some of the stuff you had to go through just to stand up against the wokeness and the social justice and some of the authoritarianism. How much would you say this character reflects you? Well, Janet, that's probably the best question I've ever gotten to date. Um, There is definitely no question that my own experiences at NYU having been run, run out of there by the woke mob has a lot to do with that character and the uh, way that just by deviating from the orthodoxy of the university with this social justice ideology by, you know, making very innocuous statements, really, how they destroyed my academic career. Uh, There's no question that has to be a part of what's happening, but I think I'm also distributed throughout some of the other characters in the book as well. But definitely you're right. Yeah. Well, well, it's terrible. And when you live it out, it's much worse than putting it, you know, in, in a character who's fictitious. But certainly this informs a lot of your experience and a lot of the ways that you put the novel together. You know, when you talk, we were talking a little bit about the Karen phenomenon. You have a character in your book who initially betrays the protagonist and then comes back. You know, when you're looking at this authoritarianism and the willingness that people have because they have this problem of collective hysteria, how much more do you see this growing versus people waking up and saying, we got to knock this off? Because it seems to be growing, but maybe my view is skewed. How do you see it? Yeah, I don't know how far it could possibly get any worse in terms of it growing, but it's very, very possible because um, we, 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 see a, we see a lot of people that, you know, have the potential to wake up having woken up already. But we see a lot of more people going on being sort of induced into this madness and don't seem to have the potential to even see outside of the, the fact that they're, they're being propagandized at on a daily basis, on a, on a minute-by-minute basis. And they, they don't seem to have a way of breaking out of this propaganda that's being, you know, compelled upon them constantly. And I think that unless they shut off these networks that are that are propagating this 
I don't see how they're going to come out of it. I really don't. No, I don't either. And you touch on so many things. I mentioned transhumanism. This is something that has been brought up. Many people are familiar with talk of this great reset that the World Economic Forum has put forward. Klaus Schwab, the head of the WEF, the stated intention to capitalize on COVID-19 and the pandemic in order to overthrow traditional capitalism. They also have talked about transhumanism. How do you see transhumanism entering into the equation of, you know, what might be ahead for us in a few years using COVID-19 as an excuse to implement more and more of that? Well, they, they hold out transhumanism as this kind of enhancement, you know, that everybody will be enhanced and you'll have these superhuman abilities. You'll be able to communicate directly without going online. You'll be connected to the internet without anything uh, other than some nanobots in your brain. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, have access to all this information without even studying it. This, this is how they build it. This is the promise. But that's just the bait and switch routine, I think. Yeah. They're baiting people with this idea of this transhuman excellence, this kind of almost godlike omniscience. And then they're going to switch it into this control mechanism. And I'm hoping that people understand that's what's happening. Yeah, it is happening. What about surveillance? Of course, you you touch on that and and robots and things like that. And the scary thing when I was reading your book was I saying this doesn't even seem impossible. This seems like something that might happen in a couple of years. Uh, How do you see that potentially unfolding, the the surveillance state? We're already pretty deep into it, but how much worse do you think it'll get? Well, once they start spreading smart cities around the country, as they have in China, you know, there are 50 smart cities in China, which basically track every move that a person makes. Yeah. Every move they make is basically known by the state. And that's using 5G and using, uh, you know, surveillance through all kinds of mechanisms of detection, you know, LED and uh, all these different uh, devices to pick up movement. And then, you know, transpose them into a whole, a whole pattern of people's behaviors. And not only that, using predictive algorithms to tell what they might do next. Right. Uh, all of this is very much on the horizon. And 5G is the, is the tool for it. But social credit scoring is just around the corner, I'm afraid. And I think COVID is going to be the pretext for it. Because it'll be it'll be used as a way to say to justify tracking people, tracing their every move, knowing where they're at, what the, what they spend their money on, uh, you, probably using digital currency. So once digital currency and five G surveillance smart cities are uh, are are intact, then you have a complete surveillance society. Wow. Well, that's true, because I've heard about things like, you know, the the whole thing with smart cities and determining pre-crime, uh, you know, trying right. to identify people before they commit crimes. And, of course, that seems to run up against our Constitution, not that many people care that much about the Constitution anymore, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of teeth. And this is what I hear from a lot of conservatives. We have two parties in this country. We have a Congress. Why don't we have a government in which at least half of those people are fighting back and actually Actually winning some of the battles to stop it. Well, you have, I mean, I would say that a lot of them are bought off, frankly, yeah. through big tech and other types of major uh, corporations, I'm afraid. They're not honest brokers. They're, they're, 
They're worried about their political careers above all else. They're careerists. We need people with real values to be in in our government, not just people that are interested in their own success, their own professional upward mobility and keeping their jobs and so on. Yeah, but right. That's the problem, I think. No, I think you're right. So you would envision vaccine passports and that sort of thing becoming a reality for Americans? Yes. Uh, health certificates, health passports, probably digitized, and also the possibility of reading your genome and sending that to the central authorities and your disease states at all times. <sighs> What happened to HIPAA? <laughs> can, we, can we go back to HIPAA? I liked how that worked yeah, out. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I saw a video just a couple of days ago about somebody who was traveling. I, be- I believe it was in New York and was stopped by a table of people wearing military outfits saying, well, we need to know about, you know, your temperature and we need your information on your COVID status and all this. And, and it was like, what, what right do you have to all of that? I mean, it, it, it's just people are so freaked out. They just stop and they say, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I better fork it over. How do you think we ought to deal with situations like that when situations like that are coming up more frequently? Well, I'm thinking that we need to create societies or associations that build power by virtue of, you know, by, um, by virtue of being in, in uh, connection with each other, not, not, you know, not some sort of collective, so to speak, but networks of resistance, because without these networks of resistance, we won't have any rights. Uh, we need to have businesses that will form associations that will not allow these kinds of mandates to be put upon them and to rec- not, that will not require people to show, you know, uh, certificates of health in order to enter their offices and on and on and on. We need we need networks of resistance. Uh, just as in the novel, there's a network of thought deviationists. Yes, yes. No, it is very smart. I think that that's very, very necessary. And the thing that I keep going back to, I've said this for months now, it's not like we're dealing with the Black Plague. We have, it has killed hundreds of thousands of people and it's a terrible virus and I would never discount that. But at the same right. point, you have an awful lot of people recovering, 99 some percent of people recover from it. Why don't people just hone in on that basic fact and say, why are we reorganizing society over a virus that is not as lethal as a lot of other diseases we could talk about? Exactly. Plus, a lot of the, a lot of the deaths, let's face it, have been with people that have comorbidities. Right. That, that probably, you know, would have died from a, 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 a flu attack as well because they have comorbidities that make them susceptible uh, much more so than other people. Most healthy people, you know, the virus is more or less a very bad flu. I mean, for for most people, that's what it is. But you're not allowed to say that. That's a thought crime. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. And, and all of this is underscored by the fact that the media goes along and has just become a propaganda outlet. How much of that is driving where we are as a nation right now? The power of media, mostly controlled by leftists as well. Yeah, that's what's driving most of it. It's uh, the media and the big tech together are hand-in-glove authoritarians who are uh, somehow bought into leftist authoritarian uh, ideology and are spreading it on a regular basis. And thank goodness for shows like yours 
that are that are that are allowing people to see another way of looking at at the world because otherwise we're doomed. Yeah. Well, thank you, and I appreciate your willingness to come on. I I really love your books, and I really love this book too. Very quickly, can you speak to the importance of individuality at a moment like this? Yeah, I mean that's one of the major themes in the book is retaining your individual selfhood. Um, you know, and it's really hard to define what that is, right? Because it's it's a unique property that has been given to each of us, I believe, by God. And it's something that you can't allow people to erase and take away from you. That's right. And it has to be maintained at all costs because it is the prize of our lifehood here in this situation. Very good. Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, great book, Thought Criminal, and such an honor. Thank you, Dr. Rechtenwald. Keep up the good work, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Janet, for having me. You bet. God bless you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all all for those who are in Christ Jesus. I like that phrase, at all, that's in the NASB, New American Standard Bible, the version of Romans 8.1. It's such a great verse. Why is it such a great verse? Well, for myriad reasons, not the least of which is that we have the assurance that when we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, we are not in trouble anymore with God, period. It doesn't mean that we never have to confess our sins again. Of course we do in order to have fellowship with the Lord. And of course we understand that we will never finally be like Christ until we are finally with him. We know that, that the Christian life is a process of being sanctified, that we have to obey the Lord. We have to pursue godliness. All of these things are things that we understand. But fundamentally, one of the greatest things about being a Christian and having that assurance that we are in Christ is knowing that we're no longer in trouble. Christ has taken on that punishment for us, and we are forgiven. Now, this is important for so many reasons, but it's become an important truth to reassert in our day, given what is going on with the woke stuff in the church. In the church, you might have noticed in the last several years that there has been an ongoing battle concerning things of social justice. And primarily what has been going on with social justice in the Southern Baptist Convention has been this fight over critical race theory. You'll recall a couple of years ago, because we have talked about it quite a bit, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution that talked about critical race theory being used as an analytical tool. We still believe the Bible. We believe in the preeminence of Scripture, but we can use critical race theory as an analytical tool. 
And of course, the conservatives went crazy when this happened, not only because it's ridiculous, but also because the person who originally proposed this resolution had the exact opposite take and actually wanted the Southern Baptist Convention to condemn critical race theory as being unbiblical. Now, not too long ago, you had six seminary presidents in the Southern Baptist Convention come forward and say, hmm. Critical race theory is actually incompatible with the Baptist faith and message, which is their faith statement in the Southern Baptist Convention. And they talked about critical race theory being basically unbiblical. And that's a good thing, especially considering some of their seminaries have been pushing critical race theory from various capacities. So we can get into that in a little bit. But I just find the developments after the statement was released by these seminary presidents to be quite intriguing. Why do I say this? Well, because they can't seem to really figure out if they want to be fully woke or if they just want to be kind of woke or if they just want to be woke and secret or if they want to be fully conservative and Bible-based. They just don't seem to be able to stay with one position very long. And that's a problem because when you are drifting within the confines of your denomination, how in the world are you supposed to lead people? On the one hand, they want to do some pandering to folks in the convention who want to embrace wokeness and want to embrace at least some form of critical race theory. But on the other hand, they don't want the conservatives to be mad at them too much. So they'll come back and say, oh, no, 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 this drift toward liberalism. I mean, even Al Mohler and Danny Aiken, who is Daniel Aiken, who is the president president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, have, have said there's no liberal drift. And every conservative cracked up when they saw this. Yeah, there's no liberal drift at all. What are you talking about? You had all, pe- all kinds of people in the 2018 annual meeting trying to get Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, kicked out from speaking and addressing the convention. But there's no problem with liberalism in the Southern Baptist Convention. All right, so let's trace what's gone on here. You had that statement, then, then you had the National African American Fellowship of the SBC and its president, Virginia Pastor Marshall Osbury, who also serves as the SBC's first vice president, issuing another statement. I'm telling you guys, this is going to be the cavalcade of statements. Try to stay with me here. This one came in response to a statement of that group that I just told you about, the Council of Seminary Presidents. And... (laughs) It's just incredible. Uh, Citing recent events after this, uh, now there's a third statement, the Justice, Repentance, and the SBC statement, as Baptist Press puts it, citing recent events that have left many brothers and sisters of color feeling betrayed and wondering if the SBC is committed to racial reconciliation. This new cross-ethnic group of Southern Baptists released a statement titled Justice, Repentance, and the SBC. So this came a week after the National African American Fellowship put out this statement. And that was a statement in response to the seminary press statement. (laughs) You can't keep up with this stuff. So let me deal with this justice, repentance, and the SBC statement, because this thing is, to my mind, a bit of a mess. It was published on December 18th, the 155th anniversary of the proclamation of the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude. First of all, it's kind of the 155th anniversary. I mean, it's kind of arbitrary. And they quote from Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, the words of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And they say, we affirm that the fullness of the gospel 
speaks to our need for salvation as individual sinners, as well as addresses the brokenness of the world by working to see the kingdom of God advanced in this life with full assurance that the kingdom will one day come in full. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. And as such, justice is something that tends to elude us. Why go only for justice? There are a lot of things that tend to elude us. We often allow preconceptions and opinions to cloud our judgment. True justice is exemplified by hearts, lives, and actions, staying in line with God's vision for the world through the gospel. Do you know where they're going yet? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pursue Jesus' vision as expressed in Luke 4, understanding that the fullness of this vision will come to pass upon his return and the establishment of a new heaven and new earth. We eagerly anticipate this day, however... However, human inability to achieve full justice before the return of Christ cannot become an excuse to avoid dealing with injustices in our lifetime. What, what injustices? Now oh, they're going to tell you. Well, they're not really going to tell you, but they're going to make you feel bad. The Southern Baptist Convention was founded with injustice towards African slaves at its very core. The SBC was founded in large part so that white Southern slave-holding Christians could appoint and support missionaries while continuing to hold their slaves in chains. This historical reality is neither disputed nor can it be ignored. Well, actually, I would push back against that a little bit. Why do I say that? Because it's been dealt with ad nauseum, you guys. They've dealt with it since 1995 in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have had resolution after resolution on repenting of what the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention did and, and repenting of slavery and repenting of being mean. And re, you know, I mean, there's been so much repenting. Who in the world can even keep up with it? And resolution after resolution after resolution. How many times does this convention have to release resolutions or wear out its knees going down and repenting? I mean, God is not this hard on people. Think about that for a moment. A.W. Tozer actually did a wonderful uh, essay. You might have read this at one point in one of his books called God is Easy to Live With. And in one sense, God is not easy to live with because if you're a sinner and you're in your sins and you're not in Jesus Christ, you should fear and tremble considering the wrath of the Lord that is to come upon you unless you repent. But once you repent, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have sinned individually against anybody and if you have sinned against God, which all of us do, we have the promises of scripture that there's forgiveness You say, I'm sorry, but what scripture never says is apologize for what your ancestors did. Apologize for what people who are long dead, whom you never met, did to people who are long dead, whom you never met. That is not a thing. If you go through the entire New Testament and you rake it with a rake and you try to find some passages that insinuate or state flat out that you have to repent of something someone else did, you're looking in vain because you won't find it. You are, however, responsible for your own sins. And and furthermore, if this is some kind of argument that we're all guilty, or not me because I'm not in the Southern Baptist Convention, but the rest of the Southern Baptists who are allegedly systemic racists are all guilty of still doing people wrong. Why don't you put them through a Matthew 18 process? We'll come back to that. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God won't want me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I'm going to say it again and again and again. You are responsible for your sins. You did inherit a sin nature from Adam because Adam was our first representative. So the second Adam, Jesus Christ, could be our representative when it came to salvation. That's what Romans teaches. But you are not responsible for somebody else's sin. You are not going to stand before God someday and he'll say, you know... Your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was really a bad guy, and you did not sufficiently repent for it. God will never say that because you're not responsible for somebody else's sin. We can't even deal with our own sin. How are we going to deal with grandpa's sin? It's ridiculous, and I think at some point you have to get upset about it and push back. Now they have, and I'm really grateful for that in the SBC, but it's not stopping the cavalcade of statements These people are not letting up. Now, let me go on with this justice, repentance in the SBC statement that just came out that was endorsed by none other than the president of the SBC, J.D. Greer. They said that, you know, the SBC was founded with injustice towards slaves. Okay, we're not alive then. Yet in the current moment, we see attempts to downplay this historical reality. Where? Where do you see? Where do all I see is acknowledgments of the historical reality. There are constant acknowledgments of the historic reality. What do you people want? What do the people in this statement want people to do? Who are the guilty? They say many people deny the existence of systemic injustice as a reality. And then they go on to not prove anything about anything. They never put forward any evidence of systemic injustice. It's just assumed. There is systemic injustice. What? Can you name any laws on the books or anything in the Constitution that is not racially equal. 
Maybe there's some crazy law somewhere on the books in some individual state that's racially unequal and you should rectify that, but change the law. But I can't think of anything. This country has done all kinds of repenting, all kinds of correcting, all kinds of passing legislation and all kinds of passing amendments to the Constitution to deal with these past sins. What point can we get to where we can actually say that was solved? Let's love one another. I don't know. They're upset about this. Then they say many who recognize systemic injustices, unnamed, of course, are labeled Marxists, liberals, and critical race theorists, even though they are theologically orthodox and believe in the total sufficiency of Scripture. Listen, if you are adhering to critical race theory, you're a critical race theorist. And in a sense, you're really emboldening yourself to be vulnerable to Marxism because you're buying into the concepts of cultural Marxism. That's just a fact. And you can call yourself theologically orthodox all day long. I don't really care because you will show your orthodoxy not only by what you affirm, but by what you deny. And the very fact that you can embrace this extremely obvious Marxist ideology that is as worldly as it gets right now should tell you something, that you're not theologically orthodox. If you're going around wantonly accusing your brothers and sisters of Christ of being guilty of sins that you can't even name. And as I mentioned before, you have this process in Matthew chapter 18 for dealing with sin in the church. And it is You know what this says. It talks about going and confronting your brother. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. And if he doesn't, then bring a witness and then bring a few witnesses and bring them before the church. There's a process for dealing with serious sin. These people do not try to bring up individuals in the Matthew 18 process. What they do is they paint with a very broad brush. You're all guilty. And the fact that you won't admit that you're guilty means you're even worse. That's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. While God desires us to continue growing in the area of racial justice, what what does that mean? What racial justice? The actions of some in the SBC appear to be more concerned with political maneuvering than working to present a vibrant, gospel-loving, racially and culturally diverse vision. What are they talking about? They don't say. While some progress has occurred, some recent events have left many brothers and sisters of color feeling betrayed and wondering if the SBC is committed to racial reconciliation. Look, I think this is backwards for some of these individuals. I can't think of anybody I know who's white in the Southern Baptist Convention who does not want racial reconciliation. And they have made all sorts of strides to try to reach out to the black community and black churches that belong to the SBC and African-American individuals who are part of the SBC and really try to have conversations and, and be one in Jesus Christ. I think that's what everybody wants. But when you continue to turn around and accuse your brother of not wanting racial reconciliation because they won't buy into critical race theory, it seems to me the people who are making that argument are the ones who are throwing up a roadblock to reconciliation. Don't you have to believe the best about your brother? Don't you have to extend a hand of friendship and forgiveness? And I don't see any of that. And it just goes on. And I mean, you can read it, but it's not specific. Then in the wake of all this, you have some people leaving the SBC because they're so mad. You have Charlie Dates, for example. He is pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. The headline on the Religion News Service piece is, We Out. Charlie Dates on why his church is leaving the SBC over rejection of critical race theory. I had to tell my church I was wrong. He said there is no such thing as the old Southern Baptists. Conservatism is and has always been the God of the SBC. 
Well, if you're going to make a statement like that, it sounds like progressivism is the God of progressive Baptist church. You know, when I think about some of the verses in scripture about looking at yourself with a keen eye, you know, when we, when we think about the importance of taking the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's, that's very convicting. Or when it, it, James talks about looking in a mirror and, you know, the guy who walks away and forgets what his face lo- looks like, you know, we all have this tendency to want to point the finger at other people and less of a tendency to want to look into the mirror and see our sin for what it really is. We're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this, certainly. But at some point when you have people who only point fingers and the finger never goes in the other direction. You have to believe that you have to say to some of these people, perhaps you need to acknowledge your sin too. Maybe you're being too harsh on people. Maybe you are missing the boat here. And in reading the Charlie Dates essay, I think he's doing more than missing the boat. I think he's completely off the rails. And then you have another pastor who also said that he's going to leave the SBC, Ralph D. West of Houston's The Church Without Walls, and they both criticized the SBC seminary president's declaration that critical race theory was incompatible with the denomination's statement of faith. Here's what I say to that. Then you don't belong in the SBC. If that's not the position of the denomination, if if the denomination now holds to the right position, in my view, biblically, that critical race theory is to be rejected because it's incompatible with the Bible— If you don't think critical race theory is incompatible with the Bible, then you need to find yourself another denomination. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can't sit around and and mourn, oh no, what can we do to keep people? That's not how it works. You have to stand on the truth. No matter who finds it offensive and who finds it maddening and who is mad at you over it, you have to stand on the Bible and just say, we're sorry to see you leave. We think you're wrong. Here's what the Bible says. And if people don't want to hang out with you, they don't want to hang out with you. And you can't lose, you know, sleep over it. It, It's too bad. But in a way, it goes back to what the word of God says about there must be division among you to show who has the truth. And I think this is going to be an interesting development. But again, it shows the folly of some of these Southern Baptist woke leaders forever messing around with this nonsense in the first place. They never should have ever given it any kind of opening and opening the door to allow this garbage to get in at all. We welcome people, but we're not going to accept every theory that people bring with them into our denomination and accept it because they'll get mad at us. You can't run a church like that. You can't run a denomination like that. So if these people peel off, so be it. You know, they need to repent. They need to understand that critical race theory and these false accusations of systemic racism. If there was systemic racism and systemic injustice that was the fault of the people in the Southern Baptist Convention and they don't even name it and they don't even name the people who are guilty of it and they don't even use the biblical means to put these people through a disciplinary process, then they got nothing. They're just being progressives. They just want to make the church more worldly. And it has nothing to do with skin color. There are plenty of white people who want to make the church worldly. We know that much. We know from the main line that these people have succeeded tremendously in these other denominations at destroying Christianity. And for the SBC to want to avoid that is a wise move. But remember this. Remember this, Mark eleven twenty five. and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think that some of these people who are all upset about what the SBC has done to repudiate critical race theory need to forgive. 
and somebody needs to admonish them to forgive. You need to forgive perhaps your white brothers and sisters who aren't guilty of anything. You know, forgive. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's incredible. Just basic Bible verses are so, so important to go back and study and apply in your life. We are out of time. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. God bless you. We'll see you next time.